Good evening. It's great to worship together all the time and every Sunday. And so I'm Jack, one of the pastors here. If you're new, hey, um, welcome. Glad that you're here. If you're kind of returning, welcome back. Uh, and uh, we've got uh, we've been in this series called Parables. And so tonight, if you have your Bible, you're welcome to, to open it up to Luke chapter 15. We'll get there in just a couple minutes. Uh, if you have your uh, smartphone and you know how to work it, you can go to Uversion, which is a free Bible app, and open up events underneath there. Type in Element City Church, and you'll find all of our sermon notes and stuff there. But uh, excited for us to kind of continue this series tonight and into next week. And then uh, we're going to have a couple weeks, a couple guests in to speak and, and just share a little bit with you. I'm very excited for them to come. Uh, Richard Lopez, who is running kind of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, will be here June 11th and then June 18th. Uh, a dear friend of mine, John Miller, who I've been in a covenant group with, that was pastor of Northwest Bible Church for 30 years, uh, is coming to speak as God as Father. Uh, he is a, a guy who knows God as Father and uh, who has also fathered four boys and raised them all into adulthood. And I, I just ask him to kind of come share some words of wisdom with us. And we actually have a child dedications that night. So if you are interested in being part of child dedications, uh, talk to Brian, myself, or Sarah afterwards. We'd love to connect with you on that, and then we're going to start a series called Emotion Pictures, and anyone ever see Inside Out? Yes, okay, so uh, if you haven't watched that movie in a while, watch it sometime in June before we start that. We're going to look at emotions, the role they play in life, and what the Bible has to say about those emotions, and how we navigate emotions in life in June and July, so we're going to have some fun, um, but here, I want us to start with this idea of, to look at this parable we're going to look at tonight which Luke 15, I think, is one of the most um, probably popular, but also, I think, profound uh, list of parables. In fact, it's the only time you see in the scriptures in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where three parables line up in a row. And Jesus is telling these parables for a reason and telling them to a group of people then, but we get to eavesdrop in and learn from it. And in order to kind of set the mood for us to understand maybe a little bit of the first parable he's going to tell about the parable of the lost sheep, I want to talk about distance. We understand distance uh, when it comes to certain things. So we understand distance like from point A to point B. How many of you have been on a road trip before? and you understand distance from one point to another, right? So if you were to leave Tucson and go to New York City, how many miles in your guesstimation would it take for you to go from point A, Tucson, to point B in New York? Ready? Talk to your neighbor. Take a wild guess. <clears throat> According to Google Maps, 2,498 miles, 36 hours straight if you wear the pens and go. Um, but how many of you uh, have been to the Grand Canyon before? And everyone who goes to the Grand Canyon always has that slight fear in the back of their mind, like, how far down is this to the river? Anyone know at the deepest point of the Grand Canyon how far down from point A at the top to point B where you don't want to be at the bottom? Anyone know? According to Google, 6,000 vertical feet. So at the highest point of that, um, what about how far is a marathon? Anyone ever run a full marathon before? God bless you. Just, yeah, I'm not gonna, I had to look it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> how far is a full marathon? 26.2 or 26 miles and 385 yards. 
I like 385 yards because on a good day with the wind behind me, that's a driver for me on the golf course. So that's good day. Lots of wind, lots of wind. So, um, but distance we understand from point A to point B. Uh, you can also measure distance in a different way. Distance can kind of be like from this point of time to another point of time, to a season maybe, to something that's gonna be accomplished. Uh, some of you who have friends or you yourself have gotten married recently or you have wedding plans in the future and so you have, like in this moment, you're single, but in the future, in a certain set date, you're gonna be married and so there's this length of time that that's the distance and you have this counter on your phone that tells you every day, hey, we're one day closer, right? And maybe that's, you've seen that with friends. Uh, maybe you stand on a scale and you go, okay, this is reality. <clears throat> and you go, I have a plan for a season of change that in three months from now, I want to be here. Whatever here is for you, and you step off the scale and you've made a plan, you have goals, you've set a distance of time when you will be heavier, I mean skinnier. Um, after those times, so like you've made a plan, you have a goal, and so there's distance that can be measured that way. But we also know that there's distance that happens relationally. How many of you are still best friends with the people you hung out in junior high with? Maybe a few of you. My hunch is not everybody in here is. That there's sometimes, you know, when you go back to your yearbooks, have you ever done that? You go back to your yearbooks and you see people writing things like, we're going to be BF BFF forever, right? You're like, man, I haven't talked to them in five years. I don't even remember their last name. You know, that, that type of thing. There's sometimes there's relational distance that happens, just seasons in life or life changes or things move on and move past that. And so we know distance can be measured. And here's what I want us to keep in mind, this idea of relational distance. See, what's critical for marriage, for healthy marriage, is to make sure that relational distance doesn't grow. Because that's the reality. There's always a drift in relationships unless you're proactive in making that proximity stay close. There's a natural drift that happens. We see this play out in a, in a kind of a grand scale in going all the way back to creation. God creates and announces this is good. God's creating and announces this is good. And then he has this great proximity with mankind and says, hey, don't eat from this one tree. And to simplify a very complex thing, man goes, I don't think I want God to be in charge. I want to be in charge. I will decide what tree I will eat from and what tree I will not eat from. I will eat from this. Something happens and humanity is broken. And the relationship of great proximity with our creator is shattered. Because that's what happens. See, sin is not always necessarily just breaking a house rule. There's an aspect of that. But the, really, the ramifications of sin is a relational fracturing. It, it creates relational distance between the people you've sinned against or sinned against you. It, it, that's what happened at the beginning, is it created this relational distance between us and a perfect and holy God. And what God did in that moment was put in motion a plan to get that distance covered, to close the gap that had been created. Because here's what he knew, 
and what we have discovered. It doesn't matter how good you are, you can heap up all the good deeds, but it's still not gonna be a long enough bridge to get you back across the distance to a perfect and holy God. We needed someone to come searching for us. And that's exactly what God did in the person of Jesus Christ. In, in the simplest form, that's really the narrative of the gospel. And so if that's new to you, I'd encourage you to check it out. I would encourage you to, to investigate what does this look like because here's the story Jesus is gonna tell coming out of a conversation that he's kind of eavesdropped into. So in Luke 15, he's gonna tell three stories in a row. The only time you'll see this in the gospel accounts. Powerful stories. I wish I had time to uncover kind of or unpack all of them, but I'm just gonna look at the first one tonight. And before we even do that, I want you to see the first couple verses. So here's what it says, Luke 15, uh, verse one. It says, now the tax collectors. Who is the tax collector? It's a person who collects taxes. Yeah, good job. Um, <coughs> a tax collector is someone in the first century. Who is that, okay? Someone in the first century is typically a Jewish person who has decided to side with Rome. Is that a good decision? Well, it's a good decision monetarily, but it's probably not a good decision like socially, right? So tax collectors are, are seen as thieves because what they've done pretty much mostly is say, okay, I have to tax you 15%, so I'm actually gonna tax you 25% and I'm gonna pocket 10 and I'm gonna give 15 back to Rome. Like that's how it worked. And so they were despised. They were, <laughs> shall we say, hated. They were like the IRS. Ooh. Okay, so tax collectors were coming around and hanging around Jesus. It says the tax collectors and sinners, and, and maybe one of your uh, scripture texts or one of your versions, it'll say other notorious sinners, meaning other people who are from the other side of the tracks, if you want to put it that way, who, who just didn't get the religious structure of the day. They came and hung around Jesus. There's a clue here for us. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees who are the religious leaders of the day, and the teachers of the law muttered. Murmur, 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 murmur. Murmured, okay? Uh, uh, Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 wah. Okay, like that, but with horrible disdain in their heart. So it wasn't like just whispers of like, oh, can you believe it? Um, it was like, I can't believe Jesus is hanging around these spiritual zeros. We're the spiritual heroes. He should be wanting to hang around us, and yet all these, these people keep hanging around Jesus. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. To eat with someone in the first century was an incredible thing. They didn't have fast food. It wasn't running through in and out okay? This was to sit and eat with someone, was to say, I, I value you. I'm all in, I'm invested here. And I'm willing to spend two or three hours because that's what it's gonna take. And so there's this muttering, this murmuring going on from the religious elite saying about those people over there. So you set the scene here. This is the backdrop of which Jesus is getting ready to launch into three of probably the most uh, most profound and popular parables that he tells. That's the scene. 
the tension has been growing for a while. And in one way, as you kind of read through the Gospel accounts, there's a reason Jesus was killed. We sometimes forget that because we think of Jesus as flannel graph Jesus, just healer Jesus. Jesus rubbed people the wrong way because he did things that were out of, out of the norm. He just did. Isn't it fascinating when you read through the gospel accounts that people who were nothing like Jesus actually liked Jesus? Here's a question to wrestle with. Can that be said of your life? Can that be said of mine? That people who are nothing like Jesus actually liked Jesus? That's a question worth wrestling with, friends. As you set to be a follower of Jesus, to maybe resemble more and more of what he is like. He's demonstrating in these moments that all people matter to God. Each life counts. Each life matters. So he goes on to this parable of the lost sheep. Here's what he says. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and you lose one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes back home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. There's this great rejoicing in heaven. What Jesus has maybe painted this picture is he's saying, He never uses the word shepherd if you read through the story, but that's exactly what he's talking about, right? That there's this shepherd that that says, hey, if if you have these sheep, and typically in the first century, you would have about 100 sheep. That's about what you could contain and watch over. Normally, there'd be two or three shepherds with that. And if one wanders off, here's what you gotta know about sheep. Um, Sheep are not horses, okay? You can have a wild horse, right? You're not gonna find wild sheep. Why? Sheep are dumb. Guess what we're referred to in the Bible as? Not horses. You're welcome. God loves you. You can have value in that, but you're a sheep, okay? Sheep are are dumb. They're not very bright. In fact, uh, if you read anything about shepherding, sheep who get lost, separated from the herd, kind of run to and fro. It's kind of like this zigzag, because I don't know if they feel like bullets are coming at them or something. They just run around. They don't stop. What's interesting is for a shepherd to carry a sheep on his shoulders, we think of that like, okay, we have people today who get like little pot-bellied pigs, and we're like, oh, that's so cute. You would never have a pet sheep, Okay. You just wouldn't because they're, they're messy and, and they're rude and they're not great. And like you wouldn't have one walking around your house like those little potbelly pigs that are, they are cute, okay? They're weird. I wouldn't want a pig as a pet, but hey, you know, good for you. 
but this idea of a shepherd carrying it on his shoulders, you, you, you do realize that it, a sheep doesn't naturally do that. And so like when a shepherd would catch a lost sheep, they would shove them to the ground, they would tie both their legs and then put them over their shoulder and walk back. I'm sure the sheep was not rejoicing in that moment. The shepherd was rejoicing because the sheep was valuable. It had great value. And so the shepherd's carrying it back home. And he's saying to these people, these religious leaders who should have been great shepherds, hey, wouldn't you normally naturally do this? Like if one of your sheep got away, wouldn't, wouldn't you just go look for that? Like wouldn't you spend energy and effort to go find someone that has created distance and there's that distance between you and you don't want that distance, in fact you hate that distance. And you want that distance, that gap to be closed. And so you're gonna go search and do everything you can to close that gap and to close that distance. And these 99 over here, well, they've already, they've already, they're home with you. Like, they've already been, well, the distance, the relational distance that's there, it's not there. In fact, you'd probably have other shepherds who are watching this makeshift pen out there in the wilderness, and you would go search for the one who's wandering, who's running to and fro, trying to find a way, but can't find a way on its own because it's not a dog, it's not a horse, it's a sheep and it needs a shepherd. And so the shepherd would go and look and go and search. I remember as a youth pastor uh, quite a few years, woo, decades uh, ago, and <coughs> we were at uh, Knott's Berry Farm with 200 kids, and uh, I was kind of in charge. <laughs> that was scary. Uh, and we got 199 of us on the buses, which was great. I mean, you think about it. Yeah, if you bat 199 out of 200, I mean, you're amazing. Um, and so, like, we got 199 out of the 200 on the buses, and, and I remember um, looking at the person's name who was missing and thinking, okay, did their parents pay extra for me to lose them? I, I don't think they did. So, <coughs> um, so what, do we, what do we do? And I remember leaving the 199 on the buses, and I remember walking back into Knott's Berry Farm at midnight, and this story kept coming up in my mind. And it was haunting. Because the only thing I wanted in that moment, I didn't give a rip about the 199 on the bus. It's not that I'm an uncaring person. I knew they were fine. I knew they were safe. I knew they had all the volunteers there. I knew they could get home without me. What I didn't know is where was this one? And everything in me wanted to find this one. And so for half an hour, searching all around Knott's Berry Farm, getting security involved and trying to figure out where this person is and finding her and rejoicing, having a few other choice words for this person also, but, <coughs> but rejoicing. and realizing, walking back to the bus with this young lady, I wonder if that's what Jesus meant. That that one matters most. 
It's not that the other 199 don't matter, or the other 99 according to this parable. It's not that they don't matter. See, the relational distance has already been closed. It's already been solved. There's no problem here. The problem exists with the one that's lost. And that's where the focus and the heart and the passion of the shepherd goes, naturally. Or that's where it should go. Here's the challenge, friends. The longer you walk with Jesus, so I'll speak to those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's really easy to find your time and your heart and your mind occupied with the 99. And everything you do is about these 99. And it's almost like you become callous or deaf to the one that's lost. Maybe that's what Jesus is trying to get a group of people to understand. See, you're upset with me, these Pharisees, Jesus is saying, because I hang out with these people who have this distance between them and God. And it breaks my heart. I don't want that distance there. I want them to be home. And yet the mindset is very easy to shift and drift to this idea of, well, we're the spiritual heroes. We're the ones that matter. Yeah, listen, you do matter. You are loved. You are forever loved. But you know who matters most right now? The people who aren't here. I love you. I'd do anything for you. But I'm more focused and more concerned with the people you know who aren't here. Because that's where the relational distance is. And that's the distance God wants to close with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we ever get to the place as a church where we forget that, shame on us. Shame on us. So that isn't a reprimand. But that is maybe a renewal, a challenge for you and I to have the heart of the shepherd forged and forced and focused within us. Why? Because one day, a while back, you were that one. And Jesus went on a search for you. And he found you. And he found you maybe with a group of people, maybe he found you with a particular individual, maybe he found you in partnership with what he was already doing in your life and circumstances and speaking into your life and calling you back home. And you found and were found and you were brought back. I love what the words of Peter says. Here's what he writes, Second Peter chapter three. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's speaking about his second coming. He's not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Just as the shepherd took initiative to go, 
He desires for those that are found to join him in the search party. This is what Jesus said, Luke 19, verse 10. He summed up his whole mission in this. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, period. That's why he came. If Jesus were to put a a bumper sticker to his mission of what he's about, that's it. We serve a shepherd who searches for people, who searched for you, found you, brought you home into relationship and closed the gap that was relationally there between you and a perfect God. And God longs for us to join the search because we're all lost. That's what the Bible says over and over, this theme of sheep, this theme of saying, okay, uh, this is Isaiah 53. We're all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God piled all of this in. Everything that we had done wrong on him, on Jesus. See, Jesus is not only the good shepherd, he's the perfect lamb. And he paid the price to close the gap relationally between us and God, and that's why that gap can even be closed. It's not because of your effort, or my effort, or my energy, my focus, it's about his sacrifice, that he made it right. That's why he talks so much in the Gospel of John. If you're in the Bible reading plan, and reading through the New Testament, we're in John right now, John 10, we just did this week, and it's all about Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, I lay it down for them. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. Jesus is speaking over and over through the Gospels about this shepherd motif, this narrative that we see all over, that he wants to be the good shepherd for us. See, this is why our mission statement is inviting people into a life-giving, life-changing relationship with Jesus, period. Everything we do is about a first step into relationship with him to close the gap and continual next steps of walking this journey out and having the heart of the shepherd formed and formulated within us that we would join him in this process. You're not gonna save anybody. Isn't it great to know that it's not your job to save anyone? That's a lot of pressure off. But it is your job to say each person matters. And because each one is valuable, because it's valuable to Jesus, the great shepherd, then they need to be valuable to me. Even when I'm frustrated, even when I'm angry, even when I'm feeling sorrowful, people still matter. Because here's the truth, the principle, if you wanna just file it away. Found people help find people. That's our role. That's our job. You have one job as a follower of Jesus. Worship God, love him, fall more and more in love with him, but join the search party because Jesus is already out there looking for the one and he wants us to partner with him. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the website um, youhaveonejob.com, you ever seen that? There's a, do those pictures show up? The next one there, the Target one? So just look at this for a second. <coughs> this is a, a website where it says, okay, you have one job, right? Person's putting stickers on a door to let you know. Do not enter. Enter only. Listen, you have one job. You messed that up, okay? What's the next one? 
You have one job to get these, uh, anyone colorblind? And you're just looking at stuff, you're like, I don't even know. They're all yellow, but it's red, green, blue, and yellow. Crayons, they're just all labeled yellow. You have one job, like get it right, okay? This uh, next one. This is an Oreo cookie display with Nilla wafers. You got, anyone ever, uh, you were a stock boy, stock girl in, in yeah. It's a tough job, I know, it's, it's not easy. Um, <coughs> but you get it. Next one, fashion designer. You have one job. At least get the continent right, you know? Just, when you're a fashion designer, it matters. Listen. As believers, as followers of Jesus, we have one job. Love Jesus. Love people. We're to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's, that's what worship is. It's just loving God. And as we love him, that we want to catch his heartbeat for what matters to him. You know what matters to him? People who aren't here yet. People who are lost without him. The relational distance that exists that he desperately wants to close. So Psalm 100 is a great psalm uh, to think about. It says, worship the Lord with gladness. Know that the Lord is God, it is he who made us. We are his, we are the people, the sheep of his pasture. Here's how I'd like to close tonight. I'd like to close just kind of reading through Psalm 23. It's a psalm you probably know. Uh, David wrote it. That God be, you know, being our shepherd. And what I'd love to do is just ask you two simple questions with this. So if it helps you just to kind of close your eyes and listen to this being read over you, that's what I invite you to do. Is just close your eyes where you're at. Just listen to this. And, and here's the questions ahead of time. And I'll ask again afterwards. What does it do to your heart to know that God searched for you? That he's a good shepherd. He's really good at finding people. And he found you. And he watches over you as a good shepherd. That's question one. And the second one is this. How does it move your heart to know that the shepherd is saying to you, I want you to be a part of the search party that I'm on? So here's Psalm 23. Just listen to this. David writes, The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest of valleys, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What does it do to your heart to know that the good shepherd searched for you, brought you home, removed the relational distance that existed 
and you're safe forever. His goodness and his mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell with him forever. How does that move your heart today? And secondly, how does it move your heart to know that the shepherd who did that for you longs to do that for your coworker, for your friend, for your teammate, for your sibling, for your family member. And he's maybe asking you to join the search party, to be a part of it. Not the most crucial piece, that's him, but a piece. Father, we look to you as our good shepherd. This shepherding motif and narrative is is all over the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, everywhere we look. And we are so grateful that you're the good shepherd for us. And for many of us in this room, you searched us out, you found us, and you brought us home. You removed that relational distance through faith in Jesus. And you made a way for us to have life with you And as we come to a time of communion here in a moment, we take that bread and we hold that cup and we remember it was your body broken and given that made the way possible, that that closed that distance. It was your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. It's Isaiah 53, we've all wandered. The whole rest of that passage is all about the crucifixion of what is to come and what you endured, Jesus. So we thank you for that. We remember tonight that we're so grateful, so undeserving, but we are forever indebted and overwhelmed by the love of the great shepherd. We're also invited to invite other people to take a step closer to you by how we interact and how we react and how we live life alongside and with and point people to and how we act our conversations. God, we want to be a church. We want to be individuals. We want to be a people who have the heart of the shepherd formed and fashioned within us. That we never lose sight. That found people help find people and point them in your direction. That they might have that relational distance forever taken away. And so in these next few minutes and as we worship you in song, would you stir our hearts? Would you maybe put a name on the, in the forefront of our mind that you're searching for right now that you want us to partner with you in? Help us to pray and see what the adventure is with that. God, would you form your heart of the shepherd into the hearts of your people here? We ask that in Jesus' name.